Well, hey everyone, my name is Steven and I am one of the pastors here at Journey Church. Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to this message. We pray that this helps you on your walk with Jesus, but also that it encourages you to get plugged into a local community of believers. Hey, if 2020 taught us anything, it's that being isolated from others is not how God intended us to live. So be sure to use this resource in conjunction with being plugged into your local church. Hey, we hope you enjoy this message from God's Word. It is the uh, spring forward Sunday. It is the absolute worst day of the year. I don't know if you feel that as well. Um, Fallback Sunday is the greatest day of the year. Spring forward Sunday is the worst day of the year. I always go to bed with the intention that I'm going to get plenty of sleep, and I never do. I lay there, I cannot sleep, and it's just miserable, and it takes me weeks to catch up. But that's where we're at today. I want to thank you for joining us today. If you're a first-time visitor with us, we are uh, certainly happy. Happy to have you here. Wonderful to be able to worship with you this morning, and hopefully um, you'll find in Journey a church home, and if not, we hope that you'll find a place that you feel that you can worship at and uh, be a part of, connected to as a family member. Uh, that's really what the purpose of the church is, to be that family, that group that you grow together with uh, with each other in the Lord. Uh, we are in a series of messages that we started a couple of uh, weeks ago. This is our third message in this series, and we are studying and looking at the Ten Commandments. We are looking at the Ten Great Words for Life. The Ten Commandments were given by God not as a just a checklist. It was not just given as a list of rules and obligations and legislations. The Ten Commandments are really for the believer. They're really for the heart. They really govern what the relationship is to be like between us and God and between us and and other people. Amazing truths in the Ten Commandments that we are going to be getting as we walk through this series. Now, last week, we had looked at the first commandment, that we will have no other gods before him. Today, we are going to look at commandment number two. Let's read all of the Ten Commandments. Let's read Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 18, as we jump into this today. It says these words in Exodus chapter 20, then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Now remember that was the context. That was the flow of the story. You can't understand the flow of the 10 commandments until you understand the flow of the story. They had been trapped in bondage, in slavery, oppressed in Egypt. God set them free as God set them free in this brand new journey of faith that they were on. Now he said, here's the relationship standards that are going to govern our relationship. So the context matters immensely as we understand those 10 commandments. So I'm the one who brought you out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Do not make for yourself a graven image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or on the earth below or in the water under the earth. Do not bow down to them. Do not let anyone make you serve them. For I am Adonai, your God. I am a jealous God, bringing the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. But showing loving kindness to thousands of generations of those who keep my law, my mitzvot, my commands. You must not take the name of Adonai your God in vain, for Adonai will not hold him guiltless that takes his name in vain. 
Remember the day of Sabbath, Yom Shabbat in Hebrew, to keep it holy. You were to work six days and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Shabbat. It is a Sabbath day to Adonai your God. In it, you shall not do any work, not you, not your son, not your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your cattle, nor the outsider that is within your gates. For in the six days, Adonai made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Thus, Adonai blessed the day of Sabbath, Yom Shabbat, and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long upon the land which Adonai your God is giving you. I, I messed up there on the slide. Skip down. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness against your neighbor. Do not covet your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, his manservant, his maidservant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. All the people heard these words. All the people witnessed some incredible things. They witnessed the thundering and the lightning and the sound of the shofar and the mountain smoking. And when they people saw it, they trembled and they stood far off. Incredible scene that the people are given these 10 commandments. I don't know if you remember, it was about 20 years ago now. It was in 2003. Some of you are uh, probably would remember this event. But there was a controversy in the state of Alabama. In the state of Alabama, there was a state building that had a monument to the Ten Commandments of the Ten Commandments that was there in that building. Now, the commandment monument was put there by the Chief Justice Roy Moore several years before that. And the reason he put it there is because the commandments of God are to be the foundation that society builds its laws and opinions. Well, that was challenged in court, and it was ruled in court that there had to be a separation of church and state. So a judge ordered that those commandments be removed. Now, when the chief justice, Roy Moore, had put those there, it was the fact of or the symbolism of that the law of God will be the foundation. It will be the anchor that we will anchor ourselves to. It will be the formation of our faith. All of our laws and all of our opinions will be based upon those words. Something symbolic in him putting that there. There was also something incredibly symbolic about the judge removing them. By removing them, they were essentially saying, no thanks, God. We do not want you to be involved. We don't want you involved in the laws, in the moral consensus, in the directions and opinions of our society, of our life. That really feeds into where we are at today. It used to be that years ago that people would be committed to doing what was right, Whatever was right, according to God, that's what we would do. But today, it has become what is called existentialism, which is do whatever is right in your own eyes for you at whatever time you think is necessary. So we have moved from absolute standards, what is fixed, what is secure, what will be anchored to, to something that is no longer fixed. Now it's just whatever society says. Now it's whatever feels good, feels right for you. Go ahead and do that. That plays into what I've been sharing about this book that I was reading about the biblical worldview. This idea of this book by George Barna, the leading pollster in the Christian community, the idea of the book that he 
came out with was this. He did a survey, and he found that in the United States, of all of the adult population, 100% of the adult population, only 6% have a biblical worldview. That means that 94 out of 100 people do not look at the Bible as the foundation of life, the grid of life. They do whatever they think feels good and feels right to them. They do them at their, their time. Only 6 out of 100 people say God's word is the standard. God's word is fixed. God's morality is true. And I will base my life upon that. What kind of a person are you? Are you part of the 6% or are you part of the 94%? The 94% who say God's word is irrelevant, it does not matter, or are you part of that 6% that says God's word is the foundation of my life and the biblical worldview is what matters. And I will build my life and I will build my purposes upon that. The Ten Commandments are really interesting, by the way. This is a side note. They're, they're, again, not merely a set of rules and obligations and commands and requirements. You know, just obey the rules, follow the rules, conform to the rules. That's not the heart of the Ten Commandments. The heart of the Ten Commandments is not just a list of rules. It is getting to our hearts. The Ten Commandments are written on our hearts. The law of God becomes written on our hearts. And the commandments of God, when you really receive them, will change you on the inside and absolutely affect everything in your life if you let them. And that's what the Ten Commandments do. They're amazing groupings of things God has given, amazing groupings of commands, mitzvah, mitzvot, that he has given to us. They can all be summarized in two distinct categories. We have the categories of loving God and loving others. Commandments one through four are about loving God with all of my heart, with all of my soul, with all of my mind, and with all of my strength. They're about my heart toward God. Having no other gods, no idols, not taking the Lord's name in vain, and keeping the Sabbath day holy. It's all about my relationship with him, how I love him. The other category are commandments 5 through 10, which are all about how I love others. It's all about the relationship we have with other people. Honor your father and mother, no murder, no adultery, no stealing, no false witness, no coveting. Those are all about loving others. And so you've heard that idea before, that the commandments are built upon loving God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving others as yourself. It's because this is what Jesus said. Jesus was tested. Some, uh, some lawyers came to him, which were people who were experts in the law of God. They came to him and they tested him saying, what is the great commandment? What's the best one? And they would always debate about this. They would meet in coffee shops and they would debate about what is the best commandment. One would say this, another would say this. Jesus said, here's the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God, Adonai your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law, the entire Torah and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, everything in the Bible from beginning to end is really about those two things, loving God and loving others. Everything fits into those categories. So when you think about the 10 commandments, they are really about what it means to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and what it means to love other people in your life. 
Well, last week, we looked at the topic called undivided allegiance, where we are understanding that we are pledging allegiance to God. There will be no other gods before him. And really what that was about was whom shall I worship? That's what it was about. Today, the message title today is Undiminished Worship. And what today is about is whom shall I serve? It's not just enough to worship. Who will I bow down and serve in my life? In other words, who is the priority in my life? Who am I going to bow down in service to? Let's pray and let's get into this message today. Father, help us to understand and hear from you. Help us, Lord, to honor you as God above all. I pray, Father, that you would use this time to bring about conviction and change in our hearts. And this is not a message, Lord, that I am preaching at anybody. I am directing this to myself, Lord. Show me in my own life. Do I have any idols in my life that I have been serving other than serving you? Are there any things in my life, Lord, that I need to repent of? Same for everyone else, Lord. Is there any idols in our lives that we have been bowing down to? And are, are there any things, any ways that we need to be repenting today of that? Father, speak to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. Speak a message to each heart, Lord. Help us to have receptive ears, receptive minds, and receptive hearts to your truth. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. The issue for most people in the church today is not whom I shall worship. Most people, and I'm going to make this assumption, you're attending a church here today because you are wanting to worship God. Most people don't come wanting to worship Buddha. They don't come wanting to worship Allah. They don't come wanting to worship a false god of a false religion or of a cult. They don't attend church for that reason. So typically, number one is already settled. Whom shall I worship? The real issue for most Christians in the church today is the second one. Whom shall I serve? In your heart... And you didn't know this little nugget of truth, but I'm going to share this little nugget of truth with you. There is a throne in your heart, and there is someone or something seated on the throne of your heart. And whatever is seated on the throne of your heart is the thing or the object that you bow down and serve. For some of you, that object is a chemical. For some of you, that object is a dollar sign. For some of you, the object is entertainment. It is comfort. It is materialism. Whatever, throw anything you want. For some of you, the person sitting on that throne is yourself. There's someone seated on the throne. For others, it's God and God alone who has been seated. That's really what the issue of idolatry is all about. Who is seated on the throne of our hearts? Well, that's what we're going to discover today. And I'm going to ask you today to do some very real soul searching, to really do some introspection and look within and see if there's anything in your heart that you would put into the category of idolatry as we talk about this today. So we're going to look back at those verses again 
Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. And what we're going to do today is I'm going to give you eight things. I know that sounds like a lot. I usually don't do that. But what I want to give you today is four points from these verses to show you what idolatry is and how idolatry works. And then I want to give you four points from the book of Acts about how to examine yourself and know do I have idols in my own life? That's where the soul searching is going to come in. Let's cover the first four in this, these, these three verses alone. So let's look at it together. It says this, God's second command, do not make for yourself a graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth below or in the water under the earth. Let's stop right there and let's talk about this concept and this idea of a graven image. In that day, a graven image was the Hebrew word peshal. And what the word means is an idol or a carved image, okay? Idol worship was common practice of the day. They would create gods or they would create statues. They would create some kind of emblem or symbol and they would bow down and worship that. Now, idol worship is defined this way. It is divine honor that is given to any created object. And you may think, that it just applies 4,000 years ago when God was writing this. That's when they worshiped idols. We are educated. We are intelligent. We understand. We don't do anything like that. The problem with that thinking is you're not understanding exactly what idol worship is. It's anything, any object that we are giving divine honor to. In today's society, we are just as guilty of idol worship, even though we don't have a statue we bow down to, as they were 4,000 years ago when this was written. Blaise Pascal, who was a scientist and a Christian, said this, there is nothing, more, uh, nothing so abominable in the eyes of God and of men as idolatry whereby men render to the creature that honor which is due only to the creator. Dwight Moody, a pastor and theologian, said these words, You don't have to go to heathen lands today to find false gods. America is full of them. Whatever you love more than God is your idol. What I would say to that is whatever is sitting on the throne of your heart has become your idol. Idol, whatever it is that you worship, that you bow down to, that takes that place of preeminence in your heart, has become the idol in your life. A.B. Simpson, another pastor and theologian, said, As long as you want anything very much, especially more than you want God, it is an idol. So, so let me ask you that question Do you want something more than you want God? Is money, is the career, is the family, is the kids' success, is the materialistic possessions, is just your own self? Is it the drugs, the alcohol? What is it that you want more than you want God? John Calvin, another theologian and pastor, said, the heart of man is a perpetual factory of idols. In other words, mankind can come up with all kinds of things to make and turn into idols in our lives. Let's go back to the verse. Here the verses say this. 
And I want to point out some different truths in this. So there are four things that I want to point out from these verses about idolatry. Here's the first one. He says this, do not make for yourself a graven image. The first principle of idolatry is this, an idol is something I make. It's something I have the power to make. I have the power to create an idol. Now, I've used those examples. Money is a wonderful example of this. We have the power to create money and put money on the throne of our lives. We are consumed with money. It's about getting money, accumulating more money. And you can know it's an idol because it's never enough. It never satisfies. I need to have more and more and more. Money can easily be that. And so you're looking for every get-rich-quick scheme. You're looking for every, every dollar that you can consume, whether it is legitimate or even illegitimate ways to gather money. And that becomes an idol in our lives. An idol can be the materialism I put there, the drugs, the alcohol, the, the, the politics. I can put anything on the throne, and it's something that I have made. These are not... These are not God's things. These are things that I have made into an idol in my life. Okay, number two. He says, do not make for yourself an idol, a graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth below or in the water under the earth. Do not bow down to them. Don't bow down to them. So an idol is something I can make. Secondly, an idol is something that I worship. That's what it means to bow down to. I worship. I give my praise. I give my adoration. And I give my devotion to the idol that I am bowing down to. I bow down to this and my life starts to revolve around this thing that I am worshiping as the idol in my life. Number two, number three, he says this. He goes on to say the very next lines. Do not let anyone make you serve them. So an idol is also something that I serve. So not only do I bow down in adoration, now I am living my life consumed with this thing that I am bowing down to. I've created the idol I bow down to the idol, and then I revolve my life around the service to this idol. Now, do any of you have something like that? Just, again, a little soul searching. Anybody have those kind of things that, you know what, this thing is on my throne. Maybe it's your hobby, your, your hobby. And so you spend your life worshiping at the altar of, the, of this hobby, God is put off to the side. God is secondary. The hobby is first. And so I bow down in worship and then I spend my life revolving around this. I'm consumed with it. So maybe your, your, uh, your hobby is, is golf, for example, or maybe it's hunting or maybe it's fishing. Uh, that becomes your, your hobby. You, it's on the throne. I spend my days thinking about this. I spend my hours being consumed with this. I, I watch every fishing show, hunting show, golf thing that is out there. I'm consumed with this. God is put off on the back burner, and this has become my thing. That's what it means to serve it. So God says, don't make it, don't bow down to it, don't serve it. And then he goes on to say this, for I, Adonai your God, am a jealous God, Look what he says, bringing the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness 
to the thousands of generations, to those who love me and keep my commands, my mitzvot, showing loving kindness. What does this have to do with anything about idolatry? Well, there are always consequences, both positive and negative. The positive consequences are this. If you don't bow down to the idols, you just continue to put me on the throne, I will bless you immensely. I will show loving kindness to you, but not only to you, to your family and to your children and your children's children and their children and on and on and on. A heritage will be built. But if you don't love me, the consequences are my iniquity will be upon you and the result of that is it's going to affect you and your generation and the next generation. And you've probably seen that to be true. You've heard stories of Your father was an angry man, and now you're an angry man. And his father was an abusive, angry man, and it just passes down the line. Your your grandfather was an alcoholic, and your father became an alcoholic, and now you have become an alcoholic because the pattern just keeps going down. Iniquity passes. In the same way, health passes. Godliness passes. Because some of you had a godly heritage, And you had a grandparent, and you had a parent, and you became godly because of the modeling that they did for you. And God's blessing has passed down. And so in idolatry, here's what we have. An idol is something I make. An idol is something I bow down to and worship. An idol is something I serve, and I revolve my life around it. And then an idol, this idol worship can be both negative, the iniquity, or if I have turned away from it, it is a positive that God blesses and God honors and God shows favor. So that begs this question for the final four things. It begs the question of how do I know if I have an idol or idols in my life? Well, I'm going to show you an example out of the book of Acts, and I'm going to read the story, and then I want to explain the story and give you these four points to do some soul searching, okay? The story is found in Acts chapter 19, verses 21 through 40. I'm not going to read all the verses. You can go in and read it. In fact, read all of chapter 19. Paul was on a missionary journey. Paul was going around Asia and making converts everywhere he went with the gospel message, the good news of Jesus, As he was going around, he went to a place called Ephesus. There was a lot of pagan idolatry, idol worship that happened in Ephesus. They had a goddess whose name was Artemis. And there was an incredible temple that was built to the goddess Artemis. And as they built this temple, they all in that area and in the region worshipped this false goddess. Paul came in and was stirring up trouble because he was converting people to follow Jesus. Okay, let's read the story. It says this, around that time, there arose no small uproar concerning the way. Now, the way was what early Christians, it was called the way. You're following Jesus, you were following the way. And so there was no small uproar about these Christians who were coming into town. Now, the reason there was an uproar is because they were directly confronting the false gods of the society, the idolatry. Now, there was a man there named Demetrius. Demetrius was a silversmith, a maker of silver shrines of Artemis. 
So here's how to think of Demetrius. Have you ever been to Disney? And you go to Disney or World or Disneyland and you go to the souvenir stores. They're everywhere. They're littered with souvenirs. They're high-priced souvenirs. And you go to Disney and you got to buy mouse ears. You know, you'll never wear them again, but you've got to have them. Uh, you go to Disney and you have to have the shirt and you have to have the coffee mug. Well, that's what Demetrius was. He was a souvenir seller for Artemis. So he was selling uh, bobblehead dolls and he was selling bumper stickers and he had shirts and back scratchers and umbrellas and coffee mugs. And that was his business. It was all around this temple of Artemis. So you see Demetrius, he was a silver a smith, a maker of silver shrines of Artemis. He was providing no small amount of business to the craftsmen. So he had a bunch of craftsmen who were supplying him, and then he was putting their trinkets in his store, and it was all revolved around the, the Artem, Artemis worship. He gathered all of these craftsmen together, along with those of related occupations, and he had a meeting with them, and he said, men... You know that our wealth is from this business, from Artemis. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but also throughout all of Asia, Paul has persuaded and perverted a considerable crowd, saying that handmade gods are no gods at all. So he was directly impacting their business, greatly impacting their business, because nobody was buying any stuff anymore, because Paul had converted them. So he goes on to say this, not only is there a danger that this trade of ours might come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis might be considered as nothing. They had bid, built a massive temple to the goddess Artemis. They had spent all kinds of tax money building this incredible, this incredible site, and now people aren't even going there. It's like we put all the money into Disney, and now nobody's coming here. That's what they were saying in all of this. Well, it says this. They, she will be considered as nothing. She, whom all Asia and the world worships, might even be thrown down from her majesty. When they heard, they were filled with fury. And they began shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. The city was filled with confusion. They rushed into the theater Dragging with them Gaius and Articus, those were two Christians there. They were Macedonians who were travel companions of Paul. Now when some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. It was just like madness, chaos, mob mentality. Some of the crowd solicited Alexander whom the Jewish people put forward because he was a Jew, Alexander motioned with his hand he wished to offer a defense to the crowd, but recognizing that he was Jewish for about two hours, they all with one voice cried out, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. This mob mentality, doesn't it kind of remind you of some of the things that we have seen covered in the news over the past couple of years of the mob mentality, the great confusion and the chaos and the anger and the uproar that is being, that is being portrayed? Well, there are four things from this that I just want to highlight for you very quickly. Again, to do some soul searching about idols. Do I have any idols in my life? Let's look at these together. Number one is this. An idol is anything that promises a life of security and joy apart from God. That's what an idol is. An idol is anything in your life 
that provides security, meaning, purpose, and joy apart from God. Anything that you look to to provide those things is an idol in your life. Now, in Acts chapter 19, Artemis was described as the protector and the prosperer of Ephesus. With her, the Ephesians absolutely believed that they were guaranteed security and joy because of Artemis' protection and her prospering of them. This false hope is precisely what idol worship is about. Sometimes idols are not bad things, but good things that you have turned into ultimate things. And when you take a good thing and you turn it into an ultimate thing that you think this is going to give me joy and security, that has become an idol. Again, let me go back to some examples of money. There are many people who money has become their source of joy and security. Here's the problem. If that joy is, and security comes from money and then you lose your money, now your joy and security is gone. Some people put their kids in that position. My kid is my source of joy and security. My wife, my husband is the source of joy and security. My job is the source of joy and security. But if I lose my job, if I lose my spouse because of something, some tragedy, then my source of joy and security is gone. I have put them on the altar. So what is that in your life? What in your life do you think as long as I have this, I'll be happy. If you have that, that you, you, can't, you, you, you desperately need it and you can't imagine life without it, it's a good chance that's become the idol in your life. Number two. Number two is this. Not only do they promise security and joy apart from God, idols engage the deepest emotions in our hearts. When idols are challenged, people get violent and angry. That's exactly what happened in Acts 19. When Artemis's power was threatened, they became angry and upset. And that's what happens in our lives as well when something we love is threatened. Because of our deepest emotions connected to idols, we are enraged when the idols of our lives get challenged. So if you have an idol and you love it more than you love anything else, when that gets confronted, you will be angry. And some of you have experienced it because you've had people in your life confront you over those things. You've had your family confront you over those things and you got angry. Maybe your family did an intervention and they intervened over your alcohol consumption and you got angry when they intervened. It's because that is the idol in my life. And I get angry and it produces those emotions. So idols engage the deepest emotions in us. What is that in your life? What do you think, if I ever lost this, I'd never survive? You know, uh, go back to marriage, for example. I hope that, that, uh, that I don't ever lose Jennifer. I, I really hope that. Jennifer's my wife, if you don't know that. I hope to never lose her. I know people that have lost their spouses. It's sad. It's terrible. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that if they're a Christian and you're a Christian, we don't grieve like the world grieves. 
We grieve, we're sad, we're broken, but we know that we will be with them in eternity. So we don't grieve the way that the world grieves. But if your spouse is everything, if you lose her, you lose him, your life is wrecked. Because it's the deepest emotions that engages the deepest emotions in our hearts. Number three, idols need to be protected. Idols need to be protected. Now, one of the craftsmen there, Demetrius, was making a fortune off of Artemis's stuff, off of the souvenir trade that he was doing, off the bobblehead dolls and the coffee mugs. He was making a fortune off of all of those things. He wasn't about to stand idly by as Paul just wrecked his entire financial enterprise with the message that he had. I want you to notice this, this play, though. Artemis is supposed to be the protector, and now they have to step up and protect her because she's not strong enough to protect herself. Whatever you have in your, that is the idol in your life is the thing you will protect. You will hold on to it. You will grasp onto it, and you will make sure that you don't ever lose hold of it. You start to protect that thing. What is supposed to protect us is the thing that we fiercely try to protect in our lives. So again, the question is, what is that in your life? What do you feel obsessive about protecting in your life? The number four part of this is this. An idol is anything that promises a life of security and joy. It engages the deepest emotions. They need to be protected. And then idols demand sacrifices to keep them happy. The whole system in Ephesus was built on appeasing Artemis and keeping her happy. This was no accident. Idols will always make you sacrifice for them. If business is your idol, then you may sacrifice your integrity and your honesty in order to climb the corporate ladder. If your family is, or if your job is your, is your idol again, you may sacrifice your family in pursuit of that thing. It's whatever you sacrifice for becomes the thing that is your idol. See, many of us will sacrifice a Sunday morning for kids' sports, but we will never sacrifice for God. We will sacrifice to go fishing, but we don't sacrifice for God. We will sacrifice to buy a new toy, but we don't sacrificially ever give to God. Whatever it is that we sacrifice for becomes the idol in our lives. So an idol is anything that promises life, Anything that produces anger and uproar and rage when it's challenged. An idol is the any, anything that I protect with all of my power. An idol is anything that demands sacrifices in order to keep that thing happy. Now the question really for us as we finish becomes this. Do you have any idols in your life? Is there anything that you have made that you have put on the throne of your heart that has pushed God to the side it has become primary. I bow down to it and I sacrifice for it. I serve it. It promises life. It promises joy. It promises meaning. It promises security. This idol in my life makes me angry if I think of having to ever give that up. I will sacrifice anything for this idol. It is the idol that needs to be protected at all costs. Do you have anything in your life like that? I think if we're just honest with ourselves, that we're probably going to find a lot of things that we have put on the throne of our hearts other than God. 
The message of the second command is not who I worship, it's who will I bow down and serve? Who will my life revolve around? Who will sit on the throne of my heart? What God wants is that you worship him and that he sits on your throne and you bow down in service to him. Are you doing that today? Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I lift this up to you on behalf of everyone here. I pray for myself, Lord, and everyone else that you would show us in our own lives the idols that are there, things that we have looked to and put in the throne, on the throne of our hearts, Lord, that we have put into that position that are ungodly. Lord, for some of us, we have put our jobs there. Some have put money there. Some have put hobbies there. Some have put people there. Some have put other materialistic possessions there. Lord, what is it in our lives that we have put in the throne? Lord, if there's anything other than you, help us to repent right now, saying, God, I'm sorry. I know I'm wrong. Help me to change. Please forgive me. Lord, I want you to be on that throne, that you will receive all praise, that I won't bow down to or worship any other image. Lord, I'm reminded of what you what happened in the book of Daniel with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were when an idol was made. A statue was made, this idol, and when the song would sound, Lord, or when the music would play, they were all to bow down and worship, yet these three would not worship. They would not bow down. They would not sacrifice their hearts for anything other than the Lord. There were consequences that happened for them, but you are with them every step of the way. Help us to be like that, where we will honor you. Well, we will not bow down to anything except for you. Father, thank you for meeting with us today. Just continue to work in our hearts. And as we leave this place, help us to go in your grace and make a difference in this community. And until we meet back here next week, Lord, just protect, be with, watch over, and direct every, every person's heart and mind and steps. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Hey, thanks Amen. for listening to that message. We hope that it inspired you to trust the Lord, to treasure people, and to transform our world with the saving gospel message of Jesus Christ. If God is leading you to give to Journey, head to our website, journeychurchgillette.com, and hit the Give icon in the bottom right-hand corner. Your gift helps us to continue providing resources like this every single week. Also, be sure to follow us on social media and check out our website for updates and additional information. Hey, God bless you guys and have a great day.